This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Vivian Liska, Professor of German Literature and Director of the Institute of Jewish Studies at the University of Antwerp in Belgium, as well as a distinguished visiting professor in the Faculty of the Humanities at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She's here to talk about her new book, German Jewish Thought and Its Afterlife, A Tenuous Legacy published in 2017 by Indiana University Press. Vivian, thanks very much for joining us on the show. First question, how did you come to write this book? Well, I was always interested in not only German-Jewish literature and thought, but also in its reception, in the way it was read by scholars, but mainly, and this is what led me directly to write this book, in the reception by other thinkers and philosophers. In this case, I've looked more closely into the philosophical reception of the German-Jewish thinkers and authors that interested me most, Hannah Arendt, Walter Benjamin, Joachim Scholem, Franz Kafka, and Paul Celan. Now, my choice uh, was corroborated by a distinction made by the scholar Stefan Moses, who distinguishes between normative and critical Jewish modernity. Normative Jewish critical Jewish modernity for him, uh, they are those thinkers who try to adapt Judaism to the modern age as opposed to those he calls critical thinkers, critical Jewish modernity, thinkers who use elements of the Jewish tradition to think modernity. What really um, interested me was to see to what extent these thinkers who are, let's say, for some marginal to Jewish studies, and uh, have a very complex relationship to Judaism, to what extent they can be linked to a genuinely Jewish tradition, what that would mean, and how this aspect of their work has fared uh, with thinkers in the 20th century up until today. One of the, one of the real reasons that got me to write this book was the realization that 
recently, in the decades, let's say from the final decade of the 20th century up until today, this Jewish dimension has been either appropriated, deflected, negated uh, for the sake of other beliefs, other um, ideologies, and I was particularly interested in that. So what I'm doing in my book, I'm reconstructing, on the one hand, the Jewish elements uh, that are present in the way these thinkers and authors relate to modernity, and on the other hand, how this Jewish dimension has been um, reflected upon, thought about, discussed in thinkers of the recent of recent times. So the book is divided into four parts, reflecting four different elements of Jewish tradition. And in each section, you highlight the thought of one German Jewish thinker. So we'll start with the first section titled Tradition and Transmission. And this focuses on Hannah Arendt. Uh, Tell us about your argument here. Well, first of all, the reason behind this structure, uh, yes, it is true that it is structured according to these thinkers, but uh, what mattered to me even more was that it is structured according to elements of the Jewish tradition itself. So tradition and transmission is not exactly specific, uh, but one sees with the other three Uh, how it does link up directly with uh, the Jewish tradition. Uh, One section is called Law and Narration, of course, relating to the idea of Judaism as a religion of the law. Another, Messianic language, so Jewish Messianism. And a third, Exile, Remembrance, Exemplarity. In each case, I am uh, trying to link the way these thinkers have thought about modernity and an element that is uh, genuinely deep within the Jewish tradition, yes, such as the law. So in, in Hebrew terms, it would be halacha uh, and agada, hitgalut, galut, zachor. So they are actually terms that are uh, deep within the Jewish tradition. Now, it is only after I uh, made this structure that I realized that there is one figure, in each case, it is predominant. But in each case, in the subchapters, I am mainly uh, discussing conversations, epistolary exchanges between that central figure and another figure. So in the case of Arendt, uh, it uh, starts with uh, with how she dealt with the romantic uh, Jewish woman epistolary writer and salonier Rachel van Hagen. Uh, then I'm discussing Art's reading of Gershom Scholem's Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism. And uh, in a third, uh, part of that first section, I am discussing Giorgio Agamben's reception of Hannah Arendt's and of Hannah Arendt and the Jewish dimension in her work. Giorgio Agamben is an Italian contemporary philosopher 
And he was really the one who made me realize uh, how, um, how radical, but also how important and interesting uh, the way these German Jewish thinkers are dealt with is uh, for our understanding of uh, our times in intellectual terms uh, in relation to the, the German Jewish tradition, but maybe the Jewish tradition altogether. I was interested uh, in Arendt to a large extent because uh, she, although there are, there, there's a, a big volume on, on uh, Arendt's Jewish writings, just collecting her writings that do relate to uh, Judaism, she has often been uh, looked upon as someone very ambivalent about uh, her relation to uh, Judaism. And I'm trying to show uh, how uh, this matters in her book, Rachel Van Hagen, a book uh, that she wrote uh, between uh, the early 30s until 1958 when uh, it was published. And uh, it is very important there to see how it exemplifies the tension between embracing Jewish particularism on the one hand and hailing enlightened universalism on the other. Uh, by the way, the, uh, this is really my, my main argument in the book. I am, uh, I, I'm fascinated by the way, uh, in which these German Jewish thinkers have held these tension in their, uh, works alive. The tension between European modernity on the one hand and the Jewish tradition on the other. And how this tension plays out in uh, in their major writings, very often a tension that remains unresolved in uh, in any conceptual terms. So it is not that they come to a kind of result, but the way they deal with it is something that uh, is of great actuality uh, even for today. And my uh, my contention with uh, with their contemporary reception is that very often this tension is torn apart uh, so that they are regarded either as uh, either in terms of their of their Jewishness much more rarely in terms of their link to the Jewish tradition but in terms of their Jewishness on the one hand and uh, or as uh, European modern thinkers uh, but that is precisely what uh, tears this tension apart. So I am, uh, in terms of Hannah Arendt, I am starting to look at this uh, in uh, her, in this early book on Rachel Van Hagen, then in uh, her discussion of Gershom Scholem's major trends. And finally, I'm showing how uh, this Italian philosopher, Giorgio Agamben, uh, divests Arendt's writings of that uh, Jewish dimension and appropriates it for something else. Okay, so your, your second section is on Kafka and the interaction between law and narrative. Tell us a bit about this. In some ways, my Kafka section is uh, the center of the book. I've uh, My previous book was called When Kafka Says We, I've been writing on Kafka for decades, and uh, I, here I'm I'm particularly interested 
in, uh, so it's, the section is called Law and Narration, and I'm particularly interested in how uh, Jewish law relates to Kafka's modernist literature and how these two aspects interact precisely in terms of this tension. And again, uh, I am uh, also here in each case discussing Kafka in relation to another thinker, to another author, sometimes to several others. So there are three sections in this, um, there are three uh, texts in the second part. Uh, one of them uh, is on George Agamben as reader of Kafka, and uh, here it becomes even clearer than in the Arendt section what is happening to uh, these German Jewish thinkers and authors today, and I show how uh, Kafka's uh, relation to uh, Jewish law, very ambivalent in many ways, uh, but nevertheless very strongly linked to the Jewish tradition, is read by Giorgio Agamben in terms of a new uh, Pauline uh, thinking. So where the Apostle Paul uh, is taking center stage and becomes a kind of model to um, to suspend the law uh, which is thought at the same time in terms of the Apostle Paul having suspended the law uh, after the uh, resurrection of Christ and him being a kind of model for an anarchist thinking of today so that uh, Jewish law and state law are both considered by George Agamben, but also by other thinkers of today as uh, a, a kind of oppressive system. And I show how uh, for Kafka, but also for readers of Kafka, like Walter Benjamin, this is uh, thought in very different terms. Um, one uh, article in the second section on Kafka deals with uh, Kafka's Job, and here I'm looking at how philosophers have uh, associated the biblical figure of Job with Kafka uh, in uh, very unexpected uh, ways, very often. And although Kafka never actually mentions this uh, biblical figure himself, and I um, try to derive uh, from other writings in Kafka, how he would have read Job, uh, and that turns out to be very differently from the ways in which these philosophers have read Kafka in terms of, of this eternal sufferer and altogether of the book of Job. So your next section is an examination of Walter Benjamin and the conception of messianic language. Tell us a bit about this. For Walter Benjamin, messianism is probably the closest link to the Jewish tradition. And uh, Walter Benjamin famously thinks together this uh, messianic aspect of Judaism uh, with his um, political aspirations and uh, hope for a kind of radical revolution. And uh, 
he has very rarely actually imagined what this messianic state would be. And the closest we come in his writings is the way in which he describes language. So in this section, I am uh, doing a very close reading of the way he describes messianic language uh, and the way Giorgio Agamben uh, does. And I show how, uh, while for Benjamin this is uh, closely linked to certain Kabbalistic ideas on the one hand, but on the other hand, also uh, linked to a kind of concern with everyday life, uh, a concern that I see uh, manifest in the Talmud, as opposed to readings by uh, George Agamben and others, who uh, again divest these Jewish, uh, divest Benjamin's writings about messianic language of this Jewish dimension. In this section, there there is also a discussion of, so again, there are, uh, these are all, um, these are always discussions of conversations, of dialogues. Uh, One of uh, the articles in this section discusses uh, the French thinker uh, Maurice Blanchot and the way he dealt with uh, Walter Benjamin's idea of a pure language, so a language that was a paradisiac language, uh, the language that uh, uh, Adam, with which Adam named the animals and where there was a perfect uh, coincidence between uh, so a perfect correlation between the word and reality, uh, which got lost uh, and which eventually, with, which got lost with the expulsion from paradise and will eventually return in messianic times. Um, Benjamin's notion of uh, pure language is uh, read and again, appropriated for a very different kind of thinking. In uh, in this case, uh, a very strikingly different one, uh, whereas uh, for Benjamin, messianic language is, uh, is, can be grasped in translation. It's a rather complex uh, way in which uh, Benjamin imagines that translation plays a role here. But what I show is that how Maurice Blanchot, reading Walter Benjamin's famous text, The Task of the Translator, how he brings this pure language, which uh, is deeply ensconced in the Jewish tradition in Benjamin, in Maurice Blanchot turns into what he calls the union of the German and the Greek. So bringing it totally into another cultural context. A third article in that third section deals uh, with uh, Sholem and uh, Benjamin in relation to the demonic. And here again, I'm showing how uh, a certain melancholic aspect of the writings of both Benjamin and Gershom Sholem is is discussed critically by extremely, uh, by by thinkers on opposite sides. 
and they so I'm here I'm talking about Moshe Idel on the one hand and Giorgio Agamben on the other who both make a similar accusation although they are on opposite camps and I show how this melancholy actually results from the tension between European modernity and the Jewish tradition that uh, I'm showing is so predominant in their work. So your last section covers Paul Celine and the interrelated notions of exile, remembrance and exemplarity. Tell us a bit about this. I've been interested in uh, the usage of the notion of the Jew as eternal wanderer, as ultimate exile, as ultimate uh, figure in movement, in motion uh, for a long time, because I realized that it is, um, that there is a, an immense discrepancy between <clears throat> exile as an experience, which is uh, uh, full of, of, uh, of suffering, which is uh, an extremely difficult thing to live, but how Jews are depicted as uh, wonderfully exilic when it comes to uh, an intellectual or philosophical context. Uh, I'm talking now, of course, about the period after 1945, uh, because that is when uh, many thinkers like uh, George Steiner, for example, uh, hail the, the, uh, the Jew for uh, not being linked to a territory, for being uh, free-floating, for being cosmopolitan. And uh, there is a way in which these th uh, thinkers, and there are many others that I'm discussing in, in this chapter, um, they, uh, yes, there, there is a, one can see the attraction of trying to reverse the negative idea of the rootless Jew but I also showed that there are problems with this kind of celebration of exile. And my question becomes, how can one um, indeed uh, bring in uh, or bring together the metaphoric and the experiential or existential state of exile uh, without, uh, so at the same time doing justice to the suffering it involves and the suffering, the Jewish suffering from exile through the ages, at the same time as preventing to uh, turn this into uh, an affirmation of a kind of uh, blood and soil ideology of being rooted in, uh, in, a, in a place. And... I'm finding in thinkers like uh, Jacques Derrida, but also like Emmanuel Levinas, and in the poetry of Paul Celan, uh, ways in which uh, this can this can be at least thought, and that can give a direction as to how uh, one can keep that tension alive. That section ends on 
a somewhat uh, different article. Uh, it uh, deals with Jeffrey Hartman's discussion of uh, Midrash and of Holocaust testimony, uh, where I show again how uh, how there is an attraction at the same time to a very modern thinking at the same time as rooting it in the Jewish tradition. So, well, thanks very much for um, talking to us today about your book, Vivian. Um, as we've heard, it's a very interesting and um, thought-provoking book. Um, before we let you go, uh, would you be able to tell us a, li a little bit about what you're working on next? Well, I'm, uh, I'm currently trying to, I've had a few really inspiring events around my book with important discussions that uh, came up, discussions and challenging questions. And maybe the one that I found most challenging was that uh, I, someone uh, asked me, well, uh, your criticism of how not to carry on this legacy is um, very convincing and your microanalysis are very powerful. Uh, but maybe the alternative of how to do this right uh, is not uh, made sufficiently explicit. And I am trying now to go beyond the critique that is formulated in my book uh, and try to think maybe less... Uh, closely uh, related to just the, the tensions that I can show uh, to how this can be implemented uh, in for, for the future, for the future of this tradition, this particular German Jewish tradition, but maybe for the Jewish tradition as a whole. Fantastic. Well, that sounds like a very challenging but worthwhile project and uh we certainly hope to have you back on new books in Jewish studies down the track um, to discuss that if it um, eventuates into a book. So thanks very much again for being on the program, Vivian. Um, so with us today we had Vivian Liska, Professor of German Literature and Director of the Institute of Jewish Studies at the University of Antwerp in Belgium, as well as a distinguished visiting professor in the Faculty of the Humanities at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And she talked to us about her new book, German Jewish Thought and Its Afterlife, A Tenuous Legacy, published in 2017 by Indiana University Press. Thanks very much.